Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is Ron Bentley. And this is John Harmon. This is the third episode in our series on the character of Samuel. We began with the birth narrative, the story of how Samuel was born to a faithful mother and father. We worked our way through the revelation of the stark contrast between Samuel's family and the family of the high priest Eli. We encountered the startling scene where the boy prophet Samuel confronts the high priest Eli. At this point, we know for certain that something was rotten in the state of Israel, (laughs) and Samuel was the one to set it straight. Samuel rose to prominence and served multiple roles, judge or defender of Israel, prophet, and priest. The one thing Samuel was not, though, was king. Okay. God was king of Israel. And that was just one of the things that sets this nation without a king apart from the nations around it. In this episode, though, that begins to change. Israel demands a king. In doing so, they effectively reject Samuel's leadership. This is a fundamental change in the nation's relationship to God. Let's go see how the situation develops. When we left off in the last episode, Samuel had led Israel to the point of defeating their perennial enemy, the Philistines. We were into chapter 8 now of 1 Samuel, and it makes an apparent jump ahead in time. Yeah, Ron, remember we have that section of Ark narrative? Yeah. It followed the Ark of the Covenant from capture by those Philistines to their voluntary surrender of the Ark back to Israel. We can't spend too much time on that part of the story in this series, but it's very rich and and quite humorous at points. Okay. The Ark only brought mysterious troubles on the Philistines, and they voluntarily sent it back. (laughs) But when it was firmly in the hands of the Israelites again, they didn't take it back to Shiloh. It first went to Beit Shemesh and then to Kiriath-Jearim, where it stayed for 20 years. I recall you said the history of the tabernacle itself after the capture of the Ark is a little fuzzy. True. That's another discussion for another time. But what we do know is that Shiloh did not continue as Israel's worship center. Shiloh was destroyed at some point during this period, although it's hard to nail down exactly when. Now, this is all fascinating, but I feel like we may have strayed from the story of Samuel here. (laughs) Yes, yes. This is my version of your detours on the Trinity and other (laughs) theological adventures. But you're right. Back to Samuel's story. We said the narrative skips ahead some years after the Philistines were defeated because chapter 8 opens with When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. Um, I didn't recall that judges were appointed by other judges. Ah, yes. Good eye for a theologian. (laughs) Ouch! That's That's exactly right. God raised up judges in Israel. We don't have a specific comment in the text that said Samuel did this on his own, but the absence of any mention of God being involved with the leadership decision is pretty conspicuous to me. It doesn't seem to have been a very good choice either. At the opening of 1 Samuel 8, the story goes on to say here that the two sons, Joel and Abijah, did not walk in his ways. That's Samuel's ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. That's verse 3 of 1 Samuel 8. This is not good. Is it safe to say this echoes Eli's situation with his two sons who corrupted their priestly offices? It certainly appears that way. Uh, Perhaps we're meant to get the hint that something is about to go sideways. It's also strange that when Samuel appointed his sons, 
Their leadership was seated far to the south in Beersheba, in the tribal territory of Simeon. There's nothing central to Israel about Beersheba. Hmm. Recall that Samuel had his home base at Ramah, where he was from. It was just north of Jerusalem, near the border of Benjamin and Ephraim. Why send them so far away? Or if they chose Beersheba themselves, why select a place so remote from so much of the population? I think this is all meant to sound odd. It's meant to seem a little off. John, I can't help but recall my sympathy for Eli as a tragic figure in the last episode. One of Eli's primary failures is that he couldn't or wouldn't rein in his rotten sons. And Samuel, it seems, does no better on that count. I'm sure this is my modern misreading, but Eli almost seems to be vindicated in a sense. Nobody could lead Israel and raise his sons right, not even the born prophet Samuel. (laughs) Sure. The battle for father of the year is a modern idea to bring to the reading. (laughs) But, But the literary parallel between Eli's inadequate lineage and Samuel's is definitely there. Okay. The future is uncertain, and it's clear in both cases that God would have to intervene. Uh, We're going to actually touch some more on that a little later. Okay, well, the next thing we learn in the story is that Israel rejects Samuel's son's leadership. Perhaps there's a subtle reminder here that God chooses leaders. When humans take that role, it does not go well. I think that's precisely the case. It's no accident that this is the setup for Israel's demand for a human king. Rather than wait on God to provide the leader of his choosing, the people come forward with a proposal of their own. And it's loaded with meaning. John, why do the people ask Samuel to appoint a king when Samuel's sons were clearly so inadequate? Were the elders not afraid that Samuel would appoint his own sons? Yeah, the elders explicitly ruled that out in their request. Okay. They came to Samuel and said, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. So they clearly rule Samuel's sons out of contention for kingship. And they wouldn't accept either of them as king because they had already identified them as losers. Now, who's bringing modern language to the story? (laughs) Before we leave this, though, I want to observe that the story doesn't try to hide the flaws even of Samuel. He's by no means a perfect individual. Right. Samuel is a human. Although the narrative characterizes him generally as a gifted, faithful leader, he's not immune to the realities of life. And I agree that here we see one of those realities. All right, what happens here in 1 Samuel 8 is a huge moment in Israel's story. Yes. In chapters 8 to 10, we see a huge turning point for the covenant community unfold. Israel does not want to wait on the Lord when it comes to their leadership. They want to change wholesale from tribal confederation to monarchy. Ron, the text doesn't tell us much about what's going on in Israel that such a shift has taken place. What we get is very typical of biblical historical narrative, a focus on the theological dimension of the story rather than on the political or sociological, for example. The narrative is concerned with how this looks to God and what it all means in the context of the covenant relationship. Got it. Well, the elders of Israel bring a reasonable objection to Samuel. Samuel had given leadership, specifically the role of judge, to his sons. And as we said earlier, that's not the way judges were selected in Israel. They were not selected through appointment by a previous judge, nor was judgeship a hereditary office. Apparently, though, Samuel's sons were positioned to carry on, 
And it's impossible not to notice that the description of his corrupt sons takes us straight back to the story of Eli and his family. That part of the story ended very badly. It signals something amiss to the elders and to the reader who now expect something to go very wrong. So the elders take control of the situation. The story doesn't mention that God had any input here. Presumably, we would expect some hint of God's involvement in such a far-reaching request. Yes, this is a request to replace the entire institution of which Samuel is a part. Israel seems no longer to want a God-directed prophetic judge. In the face of a potential crisis of leadership succession, at least a crisis from a human point of view, consulting God and waiting on God to provide that leadership as before doesn't look to be the way they've chosen to proceed here. At least part of their motivation is painfully transparent. The people tell Samuel, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Yes, this is actually shocking. Israel wants to shake off one of the things that made them unique, and unique by divine design, their theocracy. Their journey as God's covenant people had to this point been a journey in which a monarch was unnecessary. We'll say more about that in a minute, but just don't miss how big this request is. In a sense, they're looking to throw off some of their very identity as a people. The story itself tells us that this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. Samuel looks into this demand for a king and is rightly troubled. In response to Samuel's concern, the Lord interprets the situation for Samuel, for his prophet. It is not you they have rejected, God says, but they have rejected me as their king. John, I've heard you say many times before that the Lord was Israel's rightful king. I could not have told you where to go in scripture to read that, but here it is, plain as day. God expected Israel to recognize that he was Israel's king. When they demand that Samuel appoint a human king, it is a demand to replace Yahweh, the Lord, who is their king. That has to be quite a slap in the face to Samuel on several levels. Exactly. Notice that God goes on to say, As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Mm -hmm. That's verses 8 and 9 of 1 Samuel 8. So God sets this latest demand of the people in the long-standing pattern of Israel's idolatrous wandering eye. The message is that this is nothing surprising given the people's history of rejecting God in favor of something else. This time, it just happens to be a king they want to leave God's leadership for. I noticed that God said, listen to the people, but warn them. That sounds like Samuel is supposed to concede to their demand, but he should not do that without giving them a chance to back away. In essence, Samuel has to go give them the be careful what you ask for speech. (laughs) Yes, I think it's worth reading these few verses, Ron. As God's prophet, Samuel warns those asking for a king about the new things that will come their way if they go through with this, basically the costs and the downside of monarchy. He says, quote, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. 
Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. That's an unpleasant picture compared to the life they were currently leading. Yes, it's a picture of take, take, take. That's what a human king does. He takes from the people and uses what he takes for himself. The prophetic climax here comes with the next verse. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Of course, we remember Israel's history as slaves in Egypt, and we can almost hear God telling them, I didn't set you free from slavery to one human king so that you can walk voluntarily into slavery to another. Mm. But he would let them do it temporarily so that they could come to understand what kingship was really all about and what it really meant for Yahweh their God to be their leader. So Samuel had been affirmed and respected throughout Israel as a prophet of God. We saw that in the last episode. Here, though, in response to God's warning through him, the people refused to listen. They even insist or admit that they want to be like everyone else. They want to have a king they can see leading them and fighting their battles. They seem to have forgotten completely that this is exactly what God did for them. Ron, there's some important background to all of this that we need to pause and review. This wasn't the first time the topic of human kingship in Israel had come up. In fact, the one who had brought it up previously was God himself. Ah, uh, yes. There's a section in Deuteronomy where God talked to the people about the whole idea of having a king. Right. Shortly before Israel entered the promised land, God talked about a future time when this would come up. And there's some very familiar language there. Deuteronomy 17:14 says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. <laughs> By now that sounds familiar. It was exactly what the elders who approached Samuel said to him. It's almost as if God knew this was coming. <laughs> However, what comes immediately after that in Deuteronomy suggests it was actually part of God's plan. Uh, you read the beginning. Let me read the whole thing here. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. John, I've got to ask, how can God warn Israel against kingship in Samuel's time when it appears that God was going to choose a king for them all along? That's the key question. What exactly did God object to? God did not object to monarchy in Israel. God did object to the kind of monarchy that the people wanted. They wanted a king like all the nations around us, they'd said. It isn't the idea of kingship by itself. It's the fact that the eventual kingship that God had in mind for his people was to look nothing like the nations around them. 
that passage in Deuteronomy 17 describes what a king in Israel was not to do and then what he was to do. The king was not to accumulate horses, wives, or money for himself. Horses pointed to military prowess. Wives meant political entanglements because royal marriages were used to create alliances. Uh, plus, those wives would bring their own religious practices into the royal household and then create a potential snare for the king. And riches would tempt the king to believe that he was self-sufficient and to act accordingly, forgetting that a large source of that wealth would come from the people he ruled. God was carefully prescribing a very different kind of kingship for Israel. Well, then we read what a king in Israel was actually supposed to do. As I understand it, this is radically different from any kind of known monarchy. God says when he, the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. If you want to look that up, that's Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. Right. Does that sound like any monarchy you've ever heard of? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not the kind of unchecked human kingship that we normally think of. Kings didn't submit to laws. They were the law. What comes through loud and clear here is that even though monarchy was a given for Israel's future, it was indeed part of God's plan— there were strict parameters under which kings in Israel were to rule. That's not the kind of unchecked human kingship that we normally think of. Kings didn't submit to laws. They were the law. Mm. What comes through loud and clear here is that even though monarchy was a given for Israel's future, it was indeed part of God's plan, there were strict parameters under which kings in Israel were to rule. Kings in Israel would always consider themselves to be subject to a greater king, the Lord, Yahweh. They were not the highest authority in their land, but they would live under the law of God as any other Israelite. As you just read, Ron, not considering himself better than his fellow Israelites, meaning not living as if he were above the law. So on one hand, having a king would in fact make Israel like all the nations around them. On the other hand, though, Israel's kingship would actually be very unique. Yes, very unique indeed. Well, going back a few verses, God had said that the king was to be of God's choosing. When the elders approached Samuel to appoint a king, were they violating that stipulation? After all, they were approaching God's prophet, Samuel, with their request. Great question. They were indeed violating that stipulation because they were rushing the process. Mm. They didn't wait for God to appoint the king of his choosing in God's time, but forced the issue prematurely. And in the process, they signaled their rejection of God as their king rather than trust in God to lead them and to raise up human leaders as God saw fit. The people think that having a king will equal security. A key reason they want a king is to lead them in battle and fight for them. After so many battles over so many years against the peoples around them, including the ever-present Philistines who had caused so many problems, the Israelites seem to believe that having a king would secure their territory. That's right. But if we've been paying attention to the biblical story so far, we know that's not going to work. <laughs> right. Having or not having a king is not the issue. Israel's troubles don't come from a faulty political structure. They come from 
from the people's unfaithfulness in the covenant relationship with Yahweh, their God. They had repeatedly forsaken God and turned to idols. They continually blended into the Canaanite background, even though they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to God. Bill Arnold, whom I've mentioned before, sums up the problem with this particular request for a king. He says, it's sinful in its motives, selfish in its timing, and cowardly in its spirit. <laughs> that, that's a good summary of what we've been saying about this so far. Yikes. Uh, well, in spite of it all, though, God did grant their request. Yes. Enter Saul. Enter Saul. He's the son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin, who is reported to be tall and handsome. To, who knew there were celebrity figures in ancient Israel? <laughs> yep. In any case, chapter 9 tells a delightful story where Saul set out into the hill country just to find his father's lost donkeys and somehow instead finds the throne of Israel. Rod, I wish we had time to dig into that story more than we can here. But in short, Saul and a servant go looking for the lost animals, and they can't find them. So they decide to find the local man of God, the prophet, uh -huh. to divine the location of the donkeys so they'll know which way to go and look. Of course, the prophet or the seer is Samuel. That's where the text in 1 Samuel 9 tells us that God identified Saul to Samuel as the one who would be king. Samuel says some things to Saul that puzzle him because he doesn't know what's going on. Saul has no idea that he will be king. And eventually it's time for Saul to go. And Samuel tells him to send his servant on ahead because he has a message from God for Saul. Right. Once they're alone, the text says, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance. Saul gets this low-key private anointing, but soon after Samuel presents him publicly to the people. This is where we find that humorous scene when Samuel calls Saul's father Kish's family forward, but Saul isn't with them. He's hiding among the supplies, or as some translations put it, among the baggage, but he hadn't hidden himself well, so the people bring him out, and Samuel identifies him as God's choice. The people shout, long live the king. <laughs> By this point, we've also been told something very important. God had changed Saul's heart, and the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. Now, God seems to be giving Saul every opportunity to live up to Israelite kingship. The question is, will he? At the end of this part of the story, the narrator says, Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. So the rules of kingship in Israel were known and communicated to all. At this point, then, it seems we add kingmaker to Samuel's resume. He played a profoundly prophetic role in this whole transition. And when he anointed and presented Saul, he brought to a close the period of the judges. But with the dawn of the monarchy, the questions hang out there. What will kingship in Israel be like? Will this king be the king God always intended for Israel, or will this new king be just like the kings of the nations around him? John, if you'll let me play theologian for a moment, the story up to this <laughs> point seems to suggest that God actually does intend to use kingship in his purposes for Israel. There is a connection between this kingship, this human kingship, and God's relationship with Israel. 
In fact, God is at work in this story of Saul's journey to the throne. Even though Israel's demand for a king from Samuel was misguided at the time, God's hand and God's spirit were still at work in sending Saul, preparing him, and anointing him for the task ahead. Yes, God equipped Saul to lead, and Samuel was an important part of that process in his hybrid role as prophet, priest, and judge. And kingmaker? And kingmaker. God raised Saul up. But notice, he didn't raise Saul up above himself. Got it. In changing Saul's heart, God gave him a new life, brought him under God's own authority, and laid an expectation on him that his character and conduct would conform to God's vision for a human king. With Saul, something very central to the story of salvation emerges in history— The Israelite monarchy was a link between the patriarchs of the Abrahamic promise and the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah would be a king of Israel who would fulfill the promise to Abraham that through Abraham, God would bless the entire world. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, and we will discover soon enough that the royal line of the Messiah would not be a Benjamite line, Saul's line, but rather a Judahite line descending from David. However, here, under the leadership of Samuel, God does effect the crucial transition to monarchy. Okay, but with this transition, though, the essential fundamental reality that God is king in Israel, that never changes. That's exactly right. It may go into hiding at times. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But in the end, the Messiah comes from the house of David. And in a way, no one might have fully anticipated God is indeed the only true king. And not only the king of Israel, but the king of everyone else as well. We've now seen Samuel rise to prominence and then confront what had to be his greatest leadership challenge, the demand for a king from the people of Israel. Kingship had to happen, but it needed to happen on God's timeline and in God's way. And the people rushed this. Nevertheless, the king in Israel is still supposed to be a kingship unlike any other. The kingship of Israel will ultimately become the kingship of God's anointed one, the Messiah or Christ in Greek. John, we've got a whole series on that. Yes, we do. Ultimate Hope has a name. You can find it on the podcast website. In our next episode, we'll see that even though Saul became king, Samuel kept his authority as a prophet. In that office, Samuel will continue to work in a way that serves to hold Saul accountable to God. Samuel will, in a sense, represent the ground rules for Saul's kingship. We'll also see the turn of events that caused God to reject Saul as king and to make the choice that we're implicitly to conclude Israel should have waited for, Mm. David. Samuel will anoint David, will pass away, and then will be summoned by Saul via a medium for his advice. (laughs) (laughs) Lots to look forward to. Yes. And to wrap the series up, we plan to look at where else Samuel turns up in later biblical and apocryphal tradition. The book of 1 Samuel is not the last we hear of this colorful and pivotal character, but that's where we have to wrap up for now. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening.